Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Good morning. Thanks for uh, tuning in, and it's good to have you streaming with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with us to Mark chapter uh, Mark chapter 1. We're going to begin a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Mark here is going to share some good news. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, I've received good news several times in my life. And, and one of the most uh, rememberable times that I received good news is when we found out uh, that we were going to have our first child. And so the way that kind of went down was uh, my wife and I, we got married at a very young age. We were high school sweethearts. And we, uh, we, you know, we, we were married and we were still in college and we were both working part-time jobs and in school full-time. And so we were, we were super poor, right? And we were, we were just trying to get by. And then one day, uh, we, we knew something was kind of up. So my wife, she, she bought a test and, and she's watching at home. So if, if this is too much information, I'm sorry, I apologize later. Uh, but she was, she was taking this test and I was not in the room for the test. You know, that's, that's not cool. But uh, we got the good news and we both responded to the good news differently. Uh, I, I kind of responded this way. Just, just, I didn't say anything. My mouth was open. I was just like, uh, well, good, you know. And, and uh, she, she, was, she was responding with tears of, of, of joy, son. I just want you to know, Eli, like it's tears of joy, okay? Like it was fearful tears of joy. But nevertheless, she was just bawling, just crying. And, and we, we were shocked. We didn't know what to do. And so uh, we, we did what any person does when they receive good news. Uh, we grabbed a, rabbit, a, a roll of toilet paper, and uh, we, we took that with us, and we drove around town, and we told all of our friends and family this good news. Uh, and, and what's interesting about this story is that all you, all you care about in this story is that we had toilet paper. That's, that's really what you care about in this, in this time. So we had this good news, and we, we had to tell people about it. And that's, that's exactly what Mark's doing. He has this good news that he has to tell. And, and, and Mark has written... Uh, to the Romans proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, this is really, really good news. And uh, the reason he's writing to the Romans is because there's several uh, Christians in Rome in, at this time, and they're suffering uh, immense persecution. Uh, Emperor Nero's in, in, in charge in, in these days, and, and he's just a wicked ruler. And uh, there, was a, there was a fire that took place in the year 64, and it burned about 80% of Rome. And people were beginning to blame Nero for these fires. And so Nero, he changes the script. He flips the script, as some of you would, would know. And he says, it's the Christians that did it. And so what he does is he begins to send out his soldiers and round up all these Christians. And he grabs them and he throws many of them into the Colosseum so people can watch them be ripped apart by, by lions. And, and many of them, he puts uh, the skin of wild animals on them and, and releases wild dogs to, to go out and attack them and devour them. And, and even some, he would take Christians and he would, he would uh, spear them and he would dip them in pitch and tar and he would use them as lanterns. He would light them on fire and use them as lanterns for his gardens. This guy's wicked. And these Christians during this time, they've, they've gotten to where they're, they're hiding in their homes and they're hiding in, in small groups and they desperately need to hear good news. Now, you might be sitting in your home right now in a small group and the, the thing that you desperately need to hear is the good news, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And so who is this writer, Mark? Well, he pops up in Acts. 
And in Acts chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, we see that Peter has been in prison, right? And, and they're, they're going to kill Peter. Like they, they, That's what their plan is because it, it pleases the Jews. And so uh, through this miraculous event, Peter gets freed. And he, he's freed, and, and basically the angel leads him out, and, and he's just kind of in this uh, you know, stupor, I guess, because it says Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all, the Jewish, all the, what the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, if you get this, Mark is predominant in, in, the, in the early church. His house is the place of meeting. This is, this is where many were gathered together and were praying. This is where the early church gathers. And, and Mark, John Mark, he's, he's there. Not only that, he goes on missionary journeys. He goes with Paul and Barnabas. And in Acts 13, 5, it says, When they arrived to, at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. But verse 13, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know what happened. We don't know if the persecution was too difficult, if, if the road was too hard, if, if he was homesick. We don't, we don't really know what happened. But at some point in this missionary journey, John Mark decides, I, I can't do this anymore. I just, I just need to go home. I, I want to go back to where it's safe and where I'm comfortable and in Acts 15, 36 through 38, we see that there's a disagreement that comes up about Mark. And so, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. And so this sharp disagreement, is what Scripture says, comes up between Paul and Barnabas. And it's so sharp that they decide to split ways, and they, they both go in different directions. And, and the good news is that the proclamation of God's Word goes out even further. But there's this sharp disagreement where Paul says, you know what? No, he deserted us. He left us there as we were going on the front lines, as we were out spreading and proclaiming the gospel and the good news. He, he didn't have what it takes, and so I don't think it's best that we take him. So they split, and, and they, they went in different directions. And Barnabas, who was Mark's cousin, takes him, and they go. And so we think, well, that's, that's very discouraging for Mark and Paul, but look at what happens later on in Scripture in 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone is with me. This is what Paul writes. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for the ministry. He's very useful. At, at this later date, Paul is saying, look, I, I know that he deserted us. I know that he went through these things, but he is so useful for the ministry. Please bring him back to me. So what does this teach us about God? What does John Mark's story tell us about God? He teaches us that even when we feel like a mess, a mess up, or we might be someone who others have turned their back on, or we feel like we have failed in ministry, here's the good news. God isn't finished with you. Mark is used by God for the ministry. 
He's used by God to spread the good news, to spread the gospel. God uses the mess-ups of this world for the proclamation of his message because that's all he has to work with. And so if you feel like you've messed up or, or you've sinned so grievously that God can't use you, let me tell you, the, the thing that we learn in Scripture about John Mark is that God's not finished with you yet. God wants to use you for the proclamation of his good news. He wants to use you to share the gospel. And that's exactly what he did with John Mark. And we realize this because in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter's writing, and he's writing to uh, the Romans again, but he says this, he says, she who is in Babylon, he's using some code language there, Babylon being an evil city, those who are in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. So Peter and Mark have this unique relationship where, where Mark is now serving as Peter's secretary. And the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus through the account of Peter. So as we jump into scripture this morning, as we jump in the very first chapter, the first few verses of Mark, I want you to understand that these are the words of Peter, the fisherman, the one who walked with Jesus, the one he called the rock, Cephas. I mean, he, he even nicknames him. He's one of the inner three. This guy, Peter, had all these stories. And, and fishermen, they love to tell stories. And they're like, man, I caught that fish and it was this big, right? But, but Peter is giving a story about what he witnessed, his eyewitness account of the good news of Jesus Christ. So before we jump into scripture this morning, let me pray for us and ask God to just reveal himself to us through his word. Father, we come to you and we thank you so much for a time to be in your word this morning. The God that we, though separated by a virus that's running through our country, we are gathered together in spirit and in truth because you and your spirit indwells each and every one of us. Father, we are the church and we're the church body because of individuals, not because of buildings and walls. And so, God, as we gather, we gather to listen to good news because just as that early church needed good news, so do we. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Son of God, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that we could have life and have it everlasting. God, I pray that if someone listening right now needs to know you, God, that you would draw them by your Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we jump in to Mark's gospel, Mark 1.1 we learn that the gospel begins with proclamation. The proclamation, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how it begins. Peter is writing this through Mark, and he's like, look, I want you to know the most important thing is who Jesus Christ is. There's a proclamation that goes out about who Jesus is, and he got this, but he gets it later on in the, in the book. And about halfway through this gospel, uh, Mark 8, 27 through 30, Peter gets it. And it says, and when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Probably one of the most important questions anyone has to ask themselves is, who do you say Jesus Christ is? And Jesus asked his disciples this question. He says, what are other people saying? Now, we live in a world where people are saying all kinds of things about who Jesus is. You know, he's a good teacher, or he was, he was a lunatic. You know, it's, it's C.S. Lewis, he says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, and you have to decide what he is. And Peter makes that decision right here, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. He begins this gospel with, this is the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When you realize who Jesus Christ is, it 
it makes it to where you have to respond. There's a proclamation. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? So Peter tells us that the most important proclamation you can make is to confess who Jesus is. Romans, Paul would say this in 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How important is the proclamation? How important is it to say who Jesus Christ is personally? It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of salvation. It's a matter of confessing who he is. And Peter knows this. And this is how Peter begins the gospel, the good news. It's who Jesus is. And then he goes on, verses 2 through 3. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He goes on, he says, look, if, if there's a proclamation, then it requires preparation. If there's a proclamation of who Jesus is and you realize who Jesus is, the Son of God, he is the Christ, then there's got to be some preparation that takes place. So what does it look like to prepare? Now, I know there's not a lot of us gathering together right now. There's not a lot of people being able to get together in large groups and, and have a meal. But maybe you can think back a few months to when it was the holidays and when we all got together. And maybe you were in charge of hosting Thanksgiving dinner. What did it look like for you to prepare? Did you run around the house and clean first before everyone came over? Uh, it seems interesting to me that we really clean the house thoroughly only to mess it up when everyone comes over. But we clean the house thoroughly. Maybe you went through and you're like, we got to find the best silverware. And maybe you yelled at your kids, where are all the spoons? Where are all the spoons? Because at my house, the spoons are always missing. And so you prepare, you cook, you spend hours preparing. Maybe you uh, are an athlete. And you're trying to train your body for a marathon. And you have to put in the necessary preparation with your, your diet and your health and your exercise. Or maybe you're a student and, and you're learning how to, how, to, how to study online and how to take tests online now. And, and you're having to prepare for that test that's coming. What does it look like to prepare? Well, I ask you. If you know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Christ, if he is Lord in the flesh, then what does it look like to prepare for his arrival? Well, Peter says, look, well, there was a messenger that was sent to tell you, to tell you to prepare. Later on in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, 28 through 34, we get this really interesting question by a scribe to Jesus. Now, this guy is super smart, and he asked Jesus this question, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So if you want to be doing what you're supposed to be doing in preparation, this guy's like, well, I want to know what the most important commandment is. I want to be doing what's right. And so Jesus answers, well, well here it is. And so the scribe, being smart, says, uh, said to him, you are right. Uh, Jesus, you're right. That, that's right. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and with all of the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He says, teacher, you're right. You're right. 
It's the most important thing we can do to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He's like, that is what it boils down to. If you really want to know what it looks like to live a life in response to who Jesus is, this is what it looks like because you're not going to be far from God. Proclamation requires preparation. You see, it's easy for us to focus our spirituality on following rules and religious devotion and miss the more important proclamation. It's easy for us to miss it. A genuine love of God and of neighbor is genuinely the most important thing we can be doing. And you think about the time that we're in right now. The most loving thing we can do during this time of social distancing and national crisis is to love God and love your neighbor because the religious routine is gone and the genuine love of spreading the good news is imperative. Our whole world has been turned upside down. We're, we're empty in our churches. We're empty in our restaurants. We, we're, we, our, our shelves on the uh, grocery stores are, are looking thin and empty in different places. And during this time... Our normal routine, our normal religious routines that sometimes make us pat ourselves on the back are all out of whack. But what's, what's the most important thing? What's, what's better than all the sacrifices that you can make? A genuine love for God and a love for neighbor. What does that look like in your life? Do you find it imperative to share the good news with those who, who need good news during a time like this? Are you prepared? Are your neighbors prepared? Do you know someone who's not prepared? Do you know someone who desperately needs to hear the good news? You see, proclamation requires preparation. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says this. Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Oh, it's good news. And just like any good news, even, even the good news of knowing you're going to have your first kid, good news is meant to be shared. And it's meant to be shared with those who are in desperate need of good news. Just like Mark writes to these Romans who are under persecution, just as we are under persecution and as we are in a stressful situation, we desperately need to be sharing the good news. It's imperative. The gospel begins with a proclamation. The gospel begins with repentance. The second thing I want you to see as we keep reading in verses 4 through 6, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So you've got this preparation that's starting to take place. And this preparation looks like repentance and confession of sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You see, John shows up, and he's this forerunner. He's this guy who's saying, look, if there's this proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, then there's got to be a preparation that takes place. And the preparation, the only reasonable preparation, is repentance. Repentance is the only reasonable response to sin. It's the only response. As we see John show up, he shows up 
picking up where the Old Testament left off. Look at what Malachi 4, 5, the last book of the Old Testament says. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. There's going to be this messenger sent, this prophet. He's going to help you prepare for the one who's coming. And then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John shows up, and he shows up to fulfill what God has been saying all along. I like how Mark Sproul puts it. Notice that one of the prophecies Mark quotes refers to the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the traditional meeting place between God and his prophets was always the wilderness. Moses saw the burning bush in the Midianite wilderness. God called a nation to himself when he brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Elijah was ministered to by ravens in the wilderness. That motif goes through the Old Testament. And now Mark begins his New Testament gospel with this strange figure coming out of the desert, out of the wilderness, looking for all the world like Elijah. You can't miss the fact that there's been this proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. And so there's got to be this preparation. And this preparation looks like repentance. Proclamation of the good news leads to preparation. And preparation begins with repentance and confession. So what do you repent of and what do you confess? We know it's sin. But we have to answer the question, what is sin? Because a lot of us have different definitions of sin. Someone might say, well, what's a sin for you isn't a sin for me. What, what is sin then? As John Piper puts it, it is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, The justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, and the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. When you wrap up a statement like that about what sin is, it's easy to see that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin and fall short because we don't honor him. We don't admire him the way we should. He's not praised the way he should. We don't esteem him the way he should be or savored. We don't fear him. We don't love him and cherish him the way that we ought. We all fall short of the glory of God. I like how Wayne Grudem puts it. Sin disrupts everything. I don't have to give you a sermon illustration for this. Sickness is a result of sin, and look at how our entire world has been disrupted by sin, by sickness. Everything is in chaos. Everything is, everything is doomsday as you watch the news, right? Everything has been disrupted because we don't live our lives the way we were originally designed to live. And we don't live in a world we were originally designed to live in. The story of the human race as presented in the Bible is the story of God fixing broken people living in a broken world. Can I tell you what the good news of Jesus Christ is? The good news is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And he came to fix broken people who are living in a broken world. And they're broken because of sin. Sin disrupts everything. And there's only one cure, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you're going to prepare yourself for that, then it begins with repentance and confession. This is what he says, living in a broken world. It is the story of God's victory over the many results of sin in the world. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, and nature. 
Yeah, we can, we can sometimes uh, have moral conformity and, and try to change the way we act. But let me ask you, how is that working with your attitude? Is your attitude an attitude of repentance? Or have you simply just modified your behavior so that you feel like you're good, you're acting correctly? Is your attitude one that honors and reveres God? Is your attitude one that fears Him and loves Him and cherishes Him? Or your nature? See, Scripture tells us that we were all born with a sin nature, that, that there's nothing good in us, and we are desperate, desperately broken and in desperate need of one who can heal us. Sin disrupts everything. John, in 1 John 3, 4 through 6, he gives us the definition of sin biblically, and he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's, there's your definition. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is saying, look, if you know Jesus, you know that there is no sin in him. He is different. He came to fix the broken people. And anyone who knows him won't keep on practicing sin because they've been changed. So they're going to be a people who repent. And we repent of sin when we recognize sin. Now, think about that. Do you recognize sin in your life? If, if you recognize sin in your life, then as often as you recognize it, you should be repenting of it. I think it's Martin Luther who said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Every time that we recognize that there's an action or an attitude or a nature in us that is contrary to God's word, then, then we should be repentant of that. For those who are in Christ, sin is a hiccup in our life and not a habit. I want you to, I want you to understand that because we all sin. Now, I hate the hiccups. When I get the hiccups, it's not just like an hour or two of hiccups. Sometimes I'll get hiccups, and they'll be prolonged for a day or two. And when you have hiccups for a day or two, your entire chest hurts because it's just constantly going in and out, in and out. And so I will try anything and everything to get rid of hiccups. I will drink water. I'll drink water upside down. I'll eat sugar. I'll eat sugar and drink water upside down. I'll do whatever it takes to, to get rid of the hiccups. And then one day they're just gone. But I recognize that they're there and I hate them. Let me ask you, when, when you respond to God and you respond and prepare your heart in repentance and confession and you look at your life, is there something like a hiccup in your life that is causing you severe pain that you can't stand? It's, it's, it's disrupting everything about your life. I don't want it there anymore. So this preparation, because there's a proclamation, is to repent and to confess. As we keep reading Mark 1.7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is saying, look, I'm here to proclaim that there's one that's coming. And this is good news. He's preaching, but he's not only preaching it, he's practicing it. The good news is not only preached, but it's practiced by believers. The proclamation of the good news leads to preparation, and preparation begins with repentance, and repentance leads to preaching and the practice of pointing people to Jesus. This is what John is doing. John is living out the good news. He's not only preaching it, but he's practicing it. He's saying, look, there's one coming. 
that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And I'm here, I'm baptizing you in a a baptism of repentance. I'm doing what God's called me to do, but I'm also going to be pointing you to Jesus through not only words, but actions. Our life should point to the good news of Jesus, not our good works or practices. You see, a lot of times we will say, you know what? Look at what I do. Look at how I deal with this. Watch, watch how I've modified my behavior. Look at how I've learned to get over this. It, that's, that's all good when we, we're trying to help somebody, but are we really pointing them to what can change their life? Are we simply telling them to model their life after us, or are we pointing them to someone whose sandals we're not worthy to bend down and untie? Are we pointing them towards Jesus, the one who came to fix a broken world, the one who has solved the sin problem, the one that is the Son of God? Are we pointing them towards the proclamation both in word and in practice? You see, John didn't consider his practice of pointing people to Jesus as prestigious as much as it was purposeful. Let me take you back to Mark, John Mark. He's this guy who was around the church. He was involved. I mean, the the early church even met at his house. He decided to go on some mission trips and get involved. And and when it got too hard, he decided, I'm I'm going back home. This is too hard. He even caused a a disruption in the church. I mean, he caused there to be a split, a church split. I mean, he's right in the middle of all this controversy. But later on, we see where Paul says, bring me Mark. He is useful for the ministry. Listen, There is a purpose for your life, church. And the purpose of your life is to take the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the good news, and tell those who are in desperate need. Just because there's been sin and failure in your past, it doesn't mean it discredits your future. During this time, let's take the proclamation of the good news of who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, and let's tell a broken world. You see the straps of whose sandals? I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Are you pointing people to something greater than yourself? Are you pointing them to Jesus Christ? See, the gospel begins with the proclamation. The gospel begins with repentance as we prepare our own hearts. And the gospel begins with obedience. Let's keep reading in Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, he saw the heavens begin to, to being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What an interesting, miraculous event that takes place when Jesus comes and asks John, Hey, I want you to baptize me. Now, remember, John's baptizing in a baptism of repentance, and Jesus is sinless, so there's nothing really for him to repent of, but he comes in and he's baptized, and you see the heavens break open, and you see the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and you hear a voice from heaven. You see the Trinity in action. You see the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and you see the Spirit descending. You see complete obedience of Jesus to the Father. The obedience of Jesus shows his practice of identifying himself with fallen humanity. Now, I think this is interesting because if all Jesus had to do was show up, die for our sins, and then ascend back into heaven, don't you think he would have just done that on one day? He would have just showed up, said, hey, I'm here. Let's, let's do this. Let's get this over with, and I'm going to go back. No, Jesus, in God's plan, decides to come to earth as a baby. 
He is born in a manger. He's born of a virgin by the Spirit of God. And he grows from a, from a baby into a child, into a young man, into a full-grown man. And he is identifying himself with humanity through every stage of life. And part of his identifying himself with humanity is to identify them, be identified with them in their need of obedience to the Father, even through the act of baptism and repentance. Jesus had to live the life that we can't live to be the sacrifice we ultimately need. Jesus is the sacrifice that we ultimately need. A beloved son had to be surrendered to be a sacrifice. Jesus surrendered himself, even in this act of obedience of baptism, to the Father so much that he was on a path to be a living sacrifice. A beloved child of God, if we are a child of God, just like Jesus is the beloved Son of God, we have to be surrendered to be a sacrifice. Our lives are to respond to the gospel, the good news, with sacrifice. This is why Paul would say in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's this, there's this response. If there's a proclamation that takes place and there's a preparation that leads to repentance, then there's going to be, from repentance, the next step of obedience. And this next step of obedience is the willingness to lay down your life to the will of the Father. God, whatever you say. This is exactly what Jesus did with his life. So how can you tell if you're fully surrendered to the Father? How can I tell right now? If, if I've heard the proclamation of God's word, if, I, if, I've, if I've repented of my sins and I seek to be obedient to God, then how can I tell if I'm really fully surrendered? Well, it's the test of temptation. The test of temptation. Temptation will show you whether or not you're fully surrendered to the Father or if you're still surrendering your life to your flesh. That's what temptation teaches us. The test of temptation reveals whether your life is producing the results of repentance and reliance on God. Going through periods of temptation will reveal whether or not you're showing the results of a repentant life, not just a I'm sorry life. Because a repentant life turns, turns away from sin and follows God. Jesus' baptism displays how imperative repentance is for faithful fruitfulness. Jesus walks through the waters of baptism representing that each and every one of us needs to walk through a period of repentance so that we can produce a fruit of obedience. Matthew 3.8, John the Baptist says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you really are someone who has prepared your heart because of the proclamation of God's word, then you're going to have this repentance in your, in your life that produces a fruit. Because as often as you recognize sin, you should repent of sin. Let's keep reading Mark 1, 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You see this word immediately? Jesus just comes out of this water. He's being obedient, and now he's going to enter into the test, the temptation test. Are you, will, are you willing to be obedient even when it gets difficult? Are you really showing what it looks like to produce the fruit of repentance? And how can you tell? By being tempted. You see, God doesn't tempt us, but he uses temptation 
to teach us. Some of us right now, we're going through a period of temptation. We've been going through periods of of time where we're really struggling with certain sins and we're really struggling with maybe some skeletons in the closet that just keep coming back up in our life. And what I want you to know is that God is not tempting you. God is teaching you. God is revealing to you the areas of your heart that you need to surrender to him. He's showing you areas that you've not fully given up to him in sacrifice. You're holding on to these areas. So he's showing you, look, through this temptation, I want to teach you. Because it's through temptation that God teaches us to believe his word. Do you believe his word? Do you believe that what God says is true? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah? Do you believe that he came to take away the sins of the world? Do you believe that he's, he's paid the price of sin in your place and that he has gifted you the, the presence of the Holy Spirit to live in and through you, to empower you? Do you believe God's word? You see, in Mark 1.11, it says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus heard this audible voice of the Father. You're being obedient. You've, you've walked through this repentance, and now you're being obedient. And I want you to know, you're my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased with you. You, you know what Matthew records on this? Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement, don't you think? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. If. This is a huge statement. If. You see, what what temptation does is it makes you want to doubt God's word. Temptation seeks to deceive you and cause you to doubt the word of God. What does God's word say about you? That you are a beloved child if you are in Jesus Christ. That he is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will use these times of temptation to teach you to surrender. I need to surrender this area to you. I need to surrender this area to you. As often as I recognize Sin, I need to repent of sin. But do you believe that what God's word says is true? Don't be deceived or doubt the good news. Believe that what the Father says is true. It's my prayer this morning that God's word has spoken to your heart. As we go into a a time of reflection, maybe it's a time of repentance. I'm going to ask Chip and Jonathan to come up. and We're going to close this morning with a song. It's an appropriate song. It's a song that says, I need you. Lord, I need you. Many of us in our own homes this morning need to stop and recognize that there's sins and there's temptations in our life that are leading us to Christ, leading us to surrender, leading us to be a living sacrifice. It's my prayer that God will speak to you now. And if God speaks to you, we'd love to hear from you. You could reach out to us if you need prayer or, or uh, like to tell us any decision you've made today at NBC, GeorgetownTN at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each.